In this segment, we'll experiment with the boundaries of storytelling, featuring some of our friends, mentors, and advisors. We'll share perspectives and reframe the narratives that fall on a spectrum. We'll have unfiltered conversations around life, business, and everything in between. Between the vantage point of a deep thinker and an atomic player. Between an objective mind and a subjective heart. Between the truth teller and the truth seeker. Between two sides of the coin. In our season finale, we have Shalini Prakash with us. Shalini is an investor, author, and a curious cat. Her curiosity around social identity and human well-being led her to author the book Clueless at 30. Shalini Prakash, welcome to the season finale of Sasset of Podcast. Super excited to have you here. And thanks for sending over your book as well, Clueless at 30. I actually did this read last weekend. So thank you so much for that. I'm glad you enjoyed it, Chashwat, and it's uh, wonderful to be here uh, today. I didn't realize it was the season finale, so yeah, it's uh, exciting to be here today. To be honest, as I was speaking to you earlier as well, right, uh, I started my second season with Wes Kao, one of the women entrepreneurs from the Silicon Valley ecosystem as well. She's uh, co-founding Maven along with Gagan Biari, and for the entire season, I could not find any amazing woman entrepreneur or venture capitalist. <laughs> in my ecosystem. So uh, thank you so much for being gracious to uh, come on my show as well. So thank you for that. Yeah, it's a pleasure. I'm, um, I'm hope I'll be able to share a thing or two, which will be beneficial for the audience. Absolutely. First of all, congratulations on this book, uh, Clueless at 30. And I'm really biased for this particular book because I'm a millennial myself. It feels like it's a playbook for millennials and people who are navigating their journeys as well in their professional and personal career. It's an amazing read. And uh, before I take the acronyms of the consulting framework that you have designed, the FOMO, the SOBO, JOLO, and MOFO, I would love to hear some thoughts on that part from you itself. Yeah, I think we um, millennials identify best with uh, acronyms. So hence the acronyms. And um, yeah, so I think um, we are definitely uh, living a life in uh, the FOMO state right? I mean, at least I was like that in my late 20s, thinking about how I'm going to be left behind if I haven't figured out a few things in life. Or, you know, there are also these glorified representations on social media of how life is if you figured it out. And then there is pressure from the family to say, okay, you know, everyone's killing it out there. And what are you doing? And, you know, there's a lot. And also there's self-inflicted pressure as well, right? So yeah, I think uh, I start off the book with uh, talking about the anxieties that we start our 20s with for a lot of people that happens uh, early 20s when you're trying to figure out a career and but there comes a point for some people where they feel stuck you know they feel like okay what now or what next and um, not everybody is at the liberty to quit their jobs and go pursue their passion because passion sometimes <laughs> doesn't play pay very well so what do you do when you feel stuck right what do you do when you have to really sort of uh, feel liberated and fulfilled and you know and how do you navigate from there forward so the book starts with FOMO as our current state of mind where we are stuck we are feeling clueless and uh, SOBO is the when you're in search of better options so all you can basically do when you're stuck is you know you're screwed you know there is nothing nothing else that you can do other than taking that step forward and trying and figuring out other options or opportunities for you out there so but then when you when you're on the other side because it's always still looking greener 
there are other hundred things that will go wrong, right? I mean, there is different kinds of anxieties and there is different kinds of fears and failures and mistakes. And, and of course, I've shared a lot of that also with examples from my friends and other people in the ecosystem. But the idea is to say that, hey, you know what? You're screwed. You're in search of better options. And there's nothing you can do. You know, you have to go through whatever the new opportunities throw at you, the new challenges that are thrown at you, and you have to go through it if you're looking for something better on the other side. And uh, which brings us to the third part, which is the uh, joy of letting go, where uh, which is the JOLO phase, where you actually essentially let go of every inhibition that is holding you back, right? And all these stories that you make up in your mind, the belief systems that you have built in yourself. And no one's probably told you this, right? I mean, this is something that you think. Uh, for example, if you fail, that you're going to be an utter failure. If you make a mistake, everyone's going to laugh at you. But then at the end of it, you know, if you ask yourself, nobody really cares because everybody is sort of figuring out their own shit and everybody is stuck in their own web of uh, truths and uncertainties and so on. So, you know, it's, it doesn't matter. So you let go of everything that is holding you back. And most of this is mentally holding you back to take that step forward. And the, the ultimate uh, state that I have said, which is uh, MOFO, which is actually the inverse of FOMO, which becomes MOFO, it is moving forward. You know, you have to just move forward. You have to sort of let go of everything and take that leap of faith and move forward and view yourself as a work in progress and never as a finished uh, product. And all of us want these big leaps in our lives and big outcomes in our lives. But ultimately, it's all those little things that we do uh, really matters, which I've spoken a lot in the fourth phase, uh, which is the MOFO phase. So this is sort of a mind map of a clueless person if they want to be unclueless. Uh, there is no cheat sheet. There are no major tips in this book. It is uh, honest and as real as it can get. I think there is a sort of cheat sheet as well. Building your slash. That was a nice, uh, you know, grid or a framework that you had designed, isn't it? Yes, yes. So there's a community that I actually started uh, three, four years ago called Find Your Slash. Essentially, because I was going through this quarter life crisis and, you know, I, I thought, okay, if I surround myself with other clueless people, maybe, maybe it'll help. And I, it actually started off like that. And um, I ran some workshops, brought, uh, gave an opportunity for people to come and showcase their talents. The, the essential uh, soul of this uh, movement was that why are we always celebrating our main avatars, right? Our main avatars is the, our day to job and so on. But there are other things which are probably a true extension of who we really are. You know, maybe you're a great artist or maybe you're a great beatboxer. And there is no place for you to showcase uh, all your second talents or your night avatars. There was uh, no platform for that. And that's essentially what I went about to uh, build back then. What slash really means is, you know, be an artist slash blogger slash writer slash any slash that you want to be and hone those different skills. And this is particularly important when you don't know what is that one thing that you want to do or what you are really passionate about. The idea is go and do 10 things there or 30 things there. Because in order to become good at one thing, you anyway need to know 10 things. So why not go do uh, 10 things? You know, this example that I use all the time that, you know, if you want to be a wildlife photographer, you need to understand wildlife and ecology and environment and, you know, photography and art and so many slashes that you need to know, so many avatars to be really good at one thing. So the more unique that you become collecting these slashes, it gives you a unique lens in the way you operate at your work. And so that's, uh, I have lived by that slash life where I'm constantly looking for new things to do. And I've been looking at 
how I can reinvent myself uh, through different um, avatars, which always, I think, gives you a unique uh, perspective of everything that you take to work every day. Absolutely. And I think um, if someone were to ask you, what is Shalini Prakash uh, slash, then it could be, let's say, corporate professional, venture capitalist, entrepreneur, author, traveler, conversationalist, and all of it, right? So, And cake lover. I love cake. Oh, that's good to hear as well. And uh, I learned a lot of terminologies and concepts as well, Shalini, from your book, right? Uh, the German concept of Torschluss Panik, which is like a fear of missing out. That is something that I had not uh, known about. And uh, I met a lot of my German friends as well. A lot of my listenership are in the European uh, Union. And uh, my first season's co-host is a German himself. So that's a good terminology to know about. And the second part is I loved um, uh, the Sobo especially because uh, search of better options, because if you are coming from a typical um, Asian ecosystem, right, you are being um, not brainwashed, but you are actually trained from early days to follow a very uh, specific path, right? Like you mentioned, a lot of people follow a typical path that is being shaped by their own society and by the, the ecosystem that they were born into. So, but I also love the um, uh, terminology that you shared about maximizers and satisfiers from Herbert Simon's decision-making uh, book as well. So, um, of course, I love that Sobo primarily, it, it somehow rhymes like South Bombay, right? So that's like a acronym for Sobo. <laughs> So FOMO, everyone knows about it, but Sobo might pick up in the coming months. Who knows about it? Would love to know a little bit about your uh, decision-making framework as well. Like how do you um, uh, take bets or uh, take uh, typical personal and professional decisions uh, when you are at a particular juncture? Because you have a great um, uh, understanding about the VC and the entrepreneurial ecosystem. And uh, you also have a understanding how the bullshit meter works. So would love to know your worldview around that. So I think uh, the uh, decision-making framework, at least in terms of the kind of work that I look for, um, has always been, I look for something which is beyond professional growth. There has to be a little bit of uh, personal growth as well as professional growth. And that's been always very important for me. And I need to be able to leave a little bit of my own signature style of whatever I'm doing. You know, I need that little bit of creative freedom and so on. So I'm always in pursuit of looking for something challenging, but I also want to do it in my own style or my own way. There's a little bit of me uh, left and not sort of really follow the cookie cutter uh, route of doing this. So which also means that you have to get very creative because at the end of the day, if you're driving a business, you need to be very strategic about how you're applying yourself and doing it. And it's a lot of uh, hard work for sure. I, I remember when I started writing, uh, when I was with um, uh, 500 Startups, I started writing a lot on LinkedIn. I was no writer before. Uh, that was actually the first time I actually started writing. And I didn't know how to do it because I, but I wanted to, look at how I can build thought leadership around investing and thesis and so on. It was not very popular to write five years ago. And, uh, but that's a direction that I adopted for myself. And, um, you know, that small step that I took then, you know, I, I think a year or two later, I was LinkedIn top voice and then I started writing more and more. And then I landed a book deal with a leading publisher in India. And then, of course, the book came out, right? So the thing is, I think I'm always looking for scope for, when I say when I'm looking for scope for personal development, this is what I mean. Uh, it helped me professionally as well as personally um, in terms of acquiring a new skill. And in terms of, you know, how do you choose like what is right for you to do has mostly been driven with this concept of, you know, satisficers as well as maximizers, right? I mean, maximizers are where you dwell too much, you think too much of, you know, 
uh, should I do this? Should I not do that? And you're looking for that perfect outcome, right? Because we all want perfect results, perfect outcomes. We don't want to make that mistake. So when I don't know what I want to do, I choose the other route where I say, okay, you know, what is the worst thing that will happen, right? I mean, if this fails or if this is not the right move and, um, and if I can live with the outcome that it will give me, you know, you, you take that chance and you move forward. Because a lot of times, um, if it is not just a small transition and you're looking for an exponential trans- transition or you're looking for a completely different uh, line of work, it becomes very important that you are able to make that leap of faith you take that leap of faith and you sort of change but you need to be able to live with that outcome and not really regret that decision that you uh, took and I think that is mostly the only decision making strategy that I have like even right now after the books come out um, I've been doing a lot of consulting with startups and so on and I'm looking at how I can build a platform and you know there are these thoughts sometimes that come with friends saying hey you should just join back a vc fund why are you trying to do things on your own and just a lot of questions like that right are you doing the right thing are you doing the wrong thing and yeah you always weigh the pros and cons of what you're doing and you can live with the outcome of uh, letting go of some of these opportunities and i think each uh, experience has a learning of its own so why not take the chance when your heart tells you to absolutely i think um, uh, somehow uh... It feels like you are a, I don't know if there's a word called as experimentalist, where you uh, do a lot of micro experiments and actually, you know, you build upon your hypothesis and then finally you follow something for a few years. I mean, that's the journey of like any entrepreneur, right? I mean, if they want to do a startup or anything, you know, you don't just jump, right? You you do your own uh, research around it. You conduct micro experiments, small experiments. And then once you have feel strongly about it, you sort of dive in fully. Um, and if, you know, some experiments work, some don't work. But the idea is not to fret and um, fear doing that experiment or even starting that experiment, right? I think that's where most people fail. Um, that's where most people uh, don't take that step forward because they're worried that that experiment will fail. But the whole point of an experiment is that, you know, you either fail or um, it's success. So that is the nature of an experiment. So you can't say, I don't want to do an experiment. And as they say, you know, about, you know, when we are 60 or 70, probably we are going to look back and really regret all the things that we didn't do than the things that we actually did. So I think you, you sort of follow your curiosity wherever it takes you and uh, play around a little bit or scratch the surface and see what more is there for you. Absolutely. And um, of course, I started from Shane Parrish Mental Models. And I, uh, I really dig deep into some of the exceptional entrepreneurs and VCs mental models as well to understand how do they take bets and how do they um, take decision when they are at a particular juncture. And what I've realized is that um, like Annie Duke uh, talks in thinking in bets, that if you are at a juncture where there are two things and both are equally good, that is the juncture where it is most difficult for a person to take a decision. But to decide between two paths, which are, of course, with a rational mind, if you could evaluate one path is better than the other, like uh, maximizers would do, then it is easy. But how do you take a decision or a bet when you are at a juncture where both the paths are equally great? That's an interesting concept. For sure. I think um, there are a couple of things. Um, there is this theory of self-determination. Uh, which talks about a couple of things that is required for a person to really thrive. And um, for me personally, it it is um, autonomy in terms of how you can grow more and more and, you know, freedom to try new things, freedom to 
experiment with smaller things or new strategies or whatever it is, a new product line, depends on the line of work that you are in. But you need a little bit of autonomy. And the second thing that I think uh, based on the same theory is that um, you need connection, you need uh, relatedness, that you're able to relate to people around you who align with your value system, who align with the uh, same goals. So yeah, I would probably, you know, if I'm stuck at a juncture where the two things which are equally exciting, I would probably look at these aspects, um, you know, where, where would I get more? Because for all of us at the end of the day, you know, we all take work back home. A lot of us only work at the office, right? We take it back home and it's living with you every day. And the amount of time we spend with our colleagues and um, our team itself is so much. So it's important that there are a lot of these other aspects that um, come together. And I would sort of weigh my uh, decisions based on these other factors as well. Awesome. You mentioned about a nice word, autonomy, right? I mean, millennials definitely, um, uh, you know, reach out for projects or experiments that gives them more autonomy. And the Gen Z are much more crazier than us. So, so I mean, they have multiple avatars, they have different slash, and they need autonomy on a daily basis. So our uh, future generations are going crazier by the day. And um, I'm very curious to understand that, um, how do you work in a uh, society which, uh, by, by nature, the construct of the society has constraints, right? So irrespective of uh, in what avatar you want to work in, you still have uh, boundaries or constraints embedded uh, deep down in the cultural roots or deep down in the business roots as well. So how do you um, establish this particular thread of autonomy in everything that you do? Either they can follow something that you mentioned about having a personal signature in every work that you do, you bring that out. But how do you, um, as a, a strong, uh, multi-potentialite individual, bring out all the colors of your personality as you tread further in your professional or personal journey as well? So I think um, what happens in these uh, cases is, so first of all, it's important that we build um, identity capital, right? Um, so that's something we can touch upon a bit more. Basically, it is uh, what you, all the experiences that you have really collected or perspectives that you have built over a period of time. So once you do that, so what's very important in this is that you can create a signature style of yours only if you're very eclectic and, you know, you're weird in your own way or crazy in your own way, right? You take that a little bit of crazy every day to work because if you are thinking like a robot or if you have like a blueprint of how certain things are told to you, then you have a fixed uh, mindset, right, about how certain things need to be done. So, you know, there's this fixed mindset and growth mindset, but, you know, but once you have fixed mindset, you know, you're not pragmatic about how you are approaching a solution or a problem, right? You are not really approaching uh, with a little bit of pragmatism, but, you know, the moment you have growth mindset where you know that uh, you can keep evolving and you can keep learning new things, I think that's how you can leave a signature style of yours in the way you approach, because at the end of it, um, there's so many talented people out there. How do you really stand out? I mean, everybody is smart. So many people are competent and capable. So I think that uh, for you to be really unique, uh, you need to have unique experiences or unique perspectives. And that only gives, you're only able to give that to yourself if you're doing things outside of your work, or you have probably done a lot of things outside of your work in the past. And it's sort of um, which everything is coming together. So yeah, I think that's how you can leave your own signature style. 
I think I loved, um, I've read through the pages where you had mentioned about the identity capital and uh, something that really comes to my mind is a 4E framework, which talks about uh, first is education and the second is um, environment and the third is experience and the final fourth is called as experiments. So usually if people form their identity capital having or grasping a little bit of education in wherever environment that they are in. And they do a lot of um, uh, traveling to gather the experience. Like you have traveled to so many locations, 30 plus countries. Rob. So, you know, you've been to Paris, you've been to, let's say, Israel. I was enjoying uh, your <laughs> experience in Israel as well that you've covered in the books. So, um, uh, and then finally, you take these um, experience um, and uh, do the experiments in the environment that you are in. And that's how you actually formalize your identity. And that also is very iterative. So you keep on, uh, changing the identity based on new opinions and perceptions that you've mentioned as well. So, so it's a very constantly evolving avatar as well. Yes, of course. And I think it's uh, the experiments as well as the failures. I think uh, we all learn so much more from the 99 um, mistakes that we make uh, than the one success that we have. Right? There's so much of learning that also. So I think that's why it's important uh, for it to it's to say it's okay if it uh, fails and you know and the first time you may you may worry about failure or maybe second time you worry about failure but I think by the time you've come to the fourth time or fifth time you probably lost count of how many times you tried something and you and it didn't take off and you don't really care about it anymore and you say okay this worked great if it didn't you'll just move on to the next thing right and uh, but as you're uh, rightly saying yes it is about conducting these um, experiments learning from it even if it's successful or even if it's not uh, you take what you need to take and then you keep moving forward. And uh, would love to know your experience in Israel because um, uh, I, I spent some time in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv uh, back in 2018. Of course, you've covered the Israeli coffee, but the Israeli chuspa in the entrepreneurial ecosystem is much talked about. And especially if you, you, you are an investor, you've been to US so many times. So in the Boston ecosystem, you'll find so many investors from the you know Israeli um, uh, ecosystem as well. Uh, same goes for New York, especially in the East Coast. So um, uh, tell me more about your Israeli experience, because that's, that's really fascinating uh, to me. I think um, one is, of course, you know, it, it's a very um, a vibrant country. I spent a lot of time in Tel Aviv. I was also there for a conference, and um, which is the DLD conference, which, which is actually a technology conference. And it was very fascinating to meet all these um, Israeli entrepreneurs and the kind of uh, technologies that they're building was so far ahead, even for your everyday use cases and so on. But what was really uh, fascinating for me was the attitude of uh, people there. You know, one is, of course, the freedom and um, how they live by the day, you know. And it's, it's, it's interesting because I met this person. She was a local Israeli and she was saying, you know, we all live like there is no tomorrow. Doing things at a certain pace, so fast, so quick. And they're like totally living it up. And then um, I said, oh, wow, you know, like this is this is something I would love to do. And and uh, she said, yeah, we actually party like there is no tomorrow because they actually believe there is no tomorrow, you know, <laughs> with so much of, uh, you know, tension around the world and uh, everything. Right. And they're at the, the epicenter of all things controversial. So so it's amazing how they live life to the uh, fullest without uh, without any inhibitions and without a care in the world. You know, they make their own rules and. Uh, which was very, very uh, fascinating for me. Yeah, and uh, I think rightly um, you mentioned about um, uh, life is an adventure. That's where you uh, found out, right? So they take life as an adventure. 
And how can you be demotivated if you take that as an adventure as well? So that's fascinating to hear. I mean, because a lot of us view this as, oh, you know, we need, because we end up needing this milestone-based life at some point where we're saying, okay, I'm going to be happy when I reach there. And uh, which is fine, right? I mean, most of us should have milestones for a career and stuff. But I think the difficult part is when you treat milestone as just an end destination and you forget to enjoy the journey or the adventure towards achieving that milestone itself. And uh, we also make the mistake of associating happiness with that milestone saying, okay, once I reach that milestone, I'll be happy. I know I'm going to be happy when I do this next or I'll, I know. And I think as human beings, we always want more. I, I think that's our nature. That's how we are wired. So which would mean that we will never be happy because we keep setting the bar high for ourselves and in pursuit of being happy. And all these milestones, destinations that we keep, uh, you know, is should be treated as an adventure and it is a part of our life and not really think that, um, you know, it's associated with happiness because happiness is a state of mind and uh, it's not our end destination or end goal. So it's important to separate the two. I'm all for having, um, you know, certain aspirations saying, okay, this is where I want to be by the age of 30. This is where I want to be by the age of 40, but it may not happen uh, for a lot of reasons, right? I mean, everything is so dynamic and it keeps changing. And it's important that we are uh, treating all these milestones or journeys as an adventure and enjoy the ride. I love those lines. And because you have been a venture capitalist and you are are swimming in the same ocean. So I'm curious, um, uh, Israel is just next to India in terms of the number of unicorns that are getting minted after um, US and China, then definitely India, and then it's being followed by Germany, Israel, etc., and UK as well. So in your interactions with a lot of VCs and entrepreneurs from uh, multiple ecosystems, you have spoken to a lot of entrepreneurs from India, and definitely you have exposure to uh, global entrepreneurs, including from Israel and US, etc. Could you point out few of the nuances or, um, you know, differences that you felt in their worldview, in their viewpoint, or how they are scaling things up, or how they approach their lives in general? Uh, And is that a particular differentiating factor in how they are building their unicorn companies and how they approach the business world per se? So I think is, so these um, entrepreneurs in different countries from day one, they're actually building for the world, you know, um, as a product, right? They're not thinking, I'm going to build a product which is very US centric or I'm only going to operate within a particular geography. So the vision itself is very grand and very big and they're thinking global from day one um, itself. And uh, so that that is the first uh, difference. And uh, but in terms of the hustle and uh, perseverance to, you know, keep moving forward and achieve your dreams, I think that's a similarity across all entrepreneurs. I think anywhere in any part of the world, I think that's what makes an entrepreneur entrepreneur, right? That they'll go to any lengths uh, to make uh, their start successful. They eat, breathe, sleep, uh, their company and their product and their startup. I think that's a similarity that you'll see across um, any, any geography or any country. Yes, and that's a great um, uh, point. I, I was reading some of the pages, which I'll touch upon uh, wearing the sassy pants. So in Israel, it, I've seen a lot of women entrepreneurs which is like very prevalent. And uh, similarly, um, uh, maybe in the West and other other ecosystems, they have a little bit more number of women entrepreneurs as opposed to the Eastern ecosystem. If my stats are not wrong, if we were to take the numbers, I think in India and in Eastern, uh, East Southeast Asia ecosystem, the numbers are not higher. And there's a big area where, um, you know, these things can take a spike. Do you agree to that? Or do you have an opinion around that? 
So I think definitely there is a uh, gap in the ecosystem, but I would like to also point out that if you have to be a woman entrepreneur, it's this is the best time to be a woman entrepreneur because there are so many programs, there's so many uh, opportunities out there um, that it's only improving. So that's a good sign. But in terms of the East versus uh, West, in terms of opportunities, I would say that a lot of this has also got to do with uh, the cultural aspects of um, their the respective country itself, right? In, even now, in most parts of India, you know, some women are educated, some women, even though they're educated, they probably always know they'll be a homemaker. They may, you know, their spouses or extended family may not allow them to work and so on, right? And I think um, this has got nothing to do with the ability of the um, person or the ability of the entrepreneur or the ability to even dream big. I think it is just the cultural nuances which doesn't really allow uh, for that to happen. But I think uh, things are slowly changing for sure. Uh, and uh, if anything, um, it's only getting better. And I think there are the challenges of similar nature. Uh, when you talk about investing in uh, different countries as well, uh, there's a lot of conversation even about um, not enough women entrepreneurs getting funded and so on. So I think there is, uh, there is a conversation around that globally, but maybe even more in our country because there are um, so many cultural uh, uh, stigmas associated with it. Sure. And um, uh, I wouldn't consider you as an outlier, but let's say a lot of um, uh, like just taking your life an example, right? You've traveled to 30 plus countries, you have exposure to multiple geographies, you have a supportive family ecosystem. Uh, Sam, Vikram, all your friends are there, Rohan, your brother is there. So not a lot of women entrepreneurs have the same, um, uh, you know, environment or um, ecosystem as well. And that that could be one of the limiting factor. And the second one that I've been, um, uh, you know, discussing or uh, digging deep into is that the interpersonal or uh, personal, you know, touch points for women entrepreneurs and VCs. Uh, let's say if you are going for a lot of um, uh, partnership deals, you will find a lot of um, uh, people that you interact, they're all men. If you get into an American VC chamber, you'll find a lot of white men itself, right? So if I were to uh, frame it properly, it would be like the challenges have always been there. And it is a very systemic challenge and uh, it will definitely take a lot of uh, years to get over it. But um, uh, if you were uh, trying to, um, uh, you know, frame something that would really, what would be something that you would like to do so that the change happens in the nearest one year or two year for women entrepreneurs or for women VCs? So I think, uh, as you said, you know, you're, if, you're, if you're thinking that, oh, there are a lot of women investors or um, sorry, male investors or male entrepreneurs out there and so on, right? If you're already thinking about these things, then you've already created a barrier for yourself in your mind because it's important that you view yourself first as a founder and then as a female founder. So I think the stories that you tell yourself matter or the mindset that at which you're approaching, approaching a, an, you know approaching the table or approaching a VC or another founder because if you are feeling underconfident because of that, People around you can um, see it, you know, uh, that you're not really confident about yourself and you, you know, you are actually bringing up the gender problem even before the other person has brought up the gender problem, right? So, yeah, I think uh, it's important that we correct our uh, perspective about how we are approaching this. I think so while there is a solution around the world, I think the solution starts with us as women. Uh, it starts with our minds and how we are viewing ourselves. 
and how we are approaching an issue. So yeah, I think the solution lies within ourselves. While there are challenges, um, it's about also approaching it very pragmatically, approaching it with a lot of uh, strategy, I would say, you know, because there are so many advantages to being a woman. Everybody talks about disadvantages for being um, a woman. There are so many advantages, not just because um, there is uh, so many other value systems that you bring to an organization, but also there are funds which have carved out a portion of their fund for funding women entrepreneurs. There are uh, VC funds looking for women partners or women investors. So there are so many opportunities as well for uh, being a woman. It's important that, you know, you sort of grab those opportunities and not think it's a bad thing that you're a woman and you're not going to get a seat at the table. So so it's important that we, like I said, you know, if you're an investor, first you need to think of yourself as, a, as an investor and not as a woman investor, you know, so you shouldn't be sort of gaslighting yourself before the world gaslights you. <laughs> Nicely put. I love those uh, pages of uh, wearing the sassy pants. And you rightly mentioned about, uh, you know, uh, getting a seat on the table. Some women actually are building the table itself. So they don't have to get a seat, but they're actually building the entire ecosystem uh, from scratch. And uh, you uh, have also mentioned about Jim Lair's uh, The Power of Story. So it starts from having a great story for yourself. And it starts from having it in your mind first. And thereafter, you know, when you try to change the world, then that really percolates in, in the later stages as well. So I'm uh, very gung-ho about the women entrepreneurs that are coming from different geographies as we speak. I was uh, doing a little bit of research and what it felt like is that currently the Indian tech ecosystem or the tech um, you know, industry is employing more than 1.5 million women and it is just growing crazily, which wasn't the case almost a decade back. So this is an excellent time for um, uh, women entrepreneurs to get into um, uh, tech slash uh, VC ecosystem as well. And we see a lot of examples coming up in the next decade as well, is what my personal hunch is. Yeah, I think there's going to be more and more action, certainly. Sure. And uh, out of your travel experiences, Shalini, uh, do you think traveling really gives you a perspective in scaling things up or in building great companies or, um, you know, fine tuning your instincts as well? Because when you travel, there are a lot of ups and downs. Uh, you know, your things might go wrong, your, your flight gets missed, sometimes you land at a place and you do not have your suitcase on. So those kind of experiences gives you a direct uh, experience of the trials and tribulations that goes through an entrepreneur's life as well. So do you believe traveling has a direct correlation with the kind of person or an entrepreneur and the kind of company they build? Certainly. I think um, there are many, uh, many, many takeaways. I think even if things going wrong in your travel or things going wrong uh, when you are having your own startup, I think you're never prepared for a lot of these things, right? And a lot of new things are thrown at you every single time uh, that you're out there. Travel, for me at least, has definitely helped me in two different ways. One is, of course, for uh, self-introspection, to get a worldly view of um, uh, things around you, how people are living, and there's a lot of humility that you develop and empathy that you develop. Uh, it depends which part of the world you are in, or even if even if it's just India alone, right? I mean, because we're such a diverse country, each uh, place, like I, you know, right from going to Kashmir to you know going to UP or Bihar to you know being in Bombay, they're all so different. We all live so differently every day, and. Um, so there's so much of learning that comes in visiting each of these uh, countries. And, and at the end of the day, you realize life is so fragile. Like if you go to Kashmir and you're seeing like so many like Indian army people on the road, and that's such a normal thing for people living there, right? And 
just realize life is so fragile and we are we are making all these mass plans big plans and then you realize you're just a tiny drop in the ocean right so there are a lot of these worldly uh, perspectives that I uh, pick along the way like you know since you mentioned um, Israel trip and losing my baggage there for me it was I didn't have my stuff for like one week and it was I, it was just there at the airport and I didn't get it back for one week and then you just realize that I needed so little to survive I didn't need my eyeliner or I didn't need my fancy clothes and I didn't need any of it you know so and it was difficult, but, you know, but I'm saying that you realize that there's so much, so little that you need to actually thrive and to survive and you don't actually need two big suitcases. And uh, that is one part of it. And the second part of it, when you talk about work and so on, especially if you're in VC or if you're working as a product manager somewhere, um, the best learning comes with uh, traveling also because you're so close to the consumers that you're actually building for. Uh, say, for example, if it's a shampoo product that you're building for a tier two market, you know, and if you're traveling there, you actually live that person's life um, in some way or the other. You're understanding what they eat to what they wear to where do they shop, what is their average spend per day. And um, so it's so it's really important that um, you connect best with your uh, customer or the people around uh, around you for you know for the product or the service even even the problem that you're trying to solve right if you're trying to build a, sol- a solutions company or a services company as an entrepreneur it's important that you understand so it's so it calls for a lot of travel uh, to be experiencing uh, those things you know the pain points of people or the problems that they have and how you can solve for it and what's uh, even better uh, time to travel is when you're figuring out what's the next thing that you want to do in life and you don't have any agenda right i think that's an even better time to travel because you make so many observations which may become an inspiration for what you do next so it's important that uh, you put yourself out there meet multiple people it could be local people or your friends connect you to somebody in that city because um, there is something called as uh, serendipity, right? So how do you make that um, happen for yourself um, unless you're traveling? So yeah, I'm a big fan of uh, lessons from traveling. Yeah, and um, uh, two things that I really loved. One is that towards the end of that particular chapter, you said that, you know, when you travel light, you realize that, you know, there are less packages and you can really explore a lot of things and you can be in the moment to experience things as well. And um, uh, the secondly, I'm very interested is that the things that you learn from travel, you can take it for life. A lot of entrepreneurs from different parts of the world, uh, whether you you have mentioned about Steve Jobs, everyone had traveled just between their times when they were clueless and they were exploring a bunch of things. So maybe, um, you know, these two elements of travel uh, go straight into uh, entrepreneur's um, kitty or his, um, you know, uh, arsenal to build uh, scalable things. So that's an interesting one. And um, uh, lastly, um, uh, you spoke about um, uh, moving forward, MOFO. So uh, tell me, um, A, how would uh, like Shalini would like to move forward in this coming decade? Because this decade is a very exciting decade, right? India is booming. There's so many global things happening. And secondly, um, uh, what would you recommend some of the um, uh, millennials who are at uh, similar junctures in their life's uh, trajectory, where they're trying to shape their next career milestone or or trying to take a next big bet, uh, what would you recommend to them? So I think uh, what the next uh, decade for me would look like is identify a uh, strong purpose which really aligns with my uh, values or value system and uh, try and build around it. I've been really passionate about people uh, development. You know, how can people become 
you know, like personal development engines of their own, right? How do you give them the tools for it? So it doesn't matter if you are a woman or an entrepreneur or even if you're trying to do your own startup, but how do you sort of become your own um, personal growth engine? So that is that is a space that I'm really uh, passionate about and exploring. And I think a lot of things around the book also talk about it in some way or the other, uh, loosely it does. So that's a space that I'm exploring. So I don't know in what form or avatar it will be in my own platform or it could be working with a fund and doing that or maybe it's another book. I don't know what shape it's going to take or maybe it'll take all the shapes that I just mentioned but that is something that I'm working on and um, in terms of leaving a message out there for all the uh, millennials I would say that uh, being uh, clueless or being stuck uh, is an amazing uh, space Uh, I'm in an amazing time Uh, it's a good thing that you are clueless and probably I wouldn't say that five years ago maybe I'll say that now (laughs) it gives you the freedom and the flexibility to try anything that you want to be And um, it also brings so much of learning because, you know, you can open your mind to different possibilities and follow your curiosities as well. Because if you're not clueless and if you're busy doing whatever you're doing, there are so many other things around you that you miss out on because you don't have time or you don't feel the need to be exploring new things. So I would say that it's a beautiful state to be in because you can be anything that you want to be. Even if it's big or small, it may not be your big main avatar. It is maybe a small avatar, but you realize it's a form of your true expression or it is something that gets your mojo going, right? And so, yeah, I think being clueless is a beautiful state, but don't just stop there, you know, take that step forward and do what you need to do. Excellent. And um, congratulations for your first book. And uh, I'm super confident that uh, you will be um, uh, releasing a bunch of other books this decade. I do not have any doubts on that. And um, I'm just curious, um, uh, what were some of your favorite books of course you have referred a lot of a lot of them you know so while reading your book the the best part i loved in the storytelling arc was uh, you refer to more than 20 books uh, so it's like getting um, you know small snippets from all those books combined into one uh, book itself so that was a nice one uh, but what were some of your favorite books or authors that you really um, you know admire and you'd also recommend to some of your listeners I think there are uh, uh, one or two books, especially if, if you're talking about this particular uh, genre. Um, one is uh, Designing Your Life by Burnett. And the other book that I really like is uh, Cal Newport's um, Be So Good They Can't Ignore You. That's another uh, book. And, because, and, and I like Cal Newport's work as well because it really concurs with me as well as the book itself. Uh, it talks about passion or the concept of passion is very damaging to a person and uh, which is uh, which is the space that I operate in as well so yeah so that that book that I really enjoyed awesome surprisingly you know I was there in one of the clubhouse room where uh, Mark Anderson said that your passion is probably dumb which means that it's a bold statement what he actually was pointing towards is that a lot of people 99.99% of the people have absolutely no clue what their passion is what they actually have found and they call it as passion is, is just a social nomenclature of their interest and their friends telling something about it, seeing a particular movie or, or you know, uh, hearing from here and there. But deep-rooted passion is, um, is not known to a lot of people in our society and in our, let's say, business world as well. Uh, many people go through the flow and uh, he's also biased and he's also a little bit, um, you know, uh, very strong in his opinions. But uh, he said that a lot of uh, Valley entrepreneurs uh, who have really figured out their passion, you know, they've like spent decades on it. Um, of course, there's a, something that you have mentioned is like 
in your book about the 10,000 hours rule and people, you know, practicing for 10 hours every day for three years, but people have spent decades in a particular arena and um, they are trying to build something on top of their passion as well. So uh, definitely time, I feel, is an ingredient in building deep-rooted passion on top of which people or entrepreneurs can build something up. And uh, it could be as invisible as, let's say, Vikram having beer in his childhood days. So, you know, tomorrow if he builds something in, in the, you know, let's say a competitor to Bira, then that particular element for like decade would really come into play at a later point in time. So that was a very, um, uh, you know, uh, different or um, counterintuitive insight that uh, Mark Anderson from A6 and Z was hinting towards. But um, uh, thanks for uh, sharing your um, nuggets of valuable in, uh, information, Shalini. It was so good to finally hear uh, from the author itself. I love authors primarily because it's not an easy task to um, write a book. Uh, you can write uh, blogs, you can write things on LinkedIn and Twitter, but uh, being an author and publishing your first book is, is a totally different ballgame altogether, especially to put all these pointers cohesively and so that it is pleasant for that reader to just complete it in, in a day, right? It, it's, it's a difficult art. People who have done it, they know about it. And people who are in the path, they know about it. But a lot of people who uh, do not have exposure to this publishing or writing industry have absolutely no clue. They could be commenters or critics, but uh, they don't know the toil and the hardship that goes in publishing your first baby as an author. So congratulations for that. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It was indeed a, an exciting experience. As you said, um, I don't come from the publishing world or the literature world. Um, and I didn't know the ropes. I just was sitting on an idea that I wanted to write about. And uh, I was uh, I was very curious in general about uh, people behavior and identity crisis as well as, as well as social identity. And you'll see that there are so many people around you trying to figure out who they are every other day, right? I mean, you'll have somebody saying, oh, dude, I'm so bored. I don't know what to do with my life. What, I'm, what the heck am I doing? And it is a very common uh, phenomena. It is not something that, you know, we should ignore. You know, there is a whole lot of books out there, content out there telling people how they need to unleash their true potential, how they need to go and be everything that they want to be. And there are so many books who actually uh, tell you these things only if you know what your passion is about or you know your purpose or direction. And the reason why I wrote this book is because this, this is for all those people who don't know what their starting point is. So then maybe they can go buy these other books. <laughs> so, but uh, yeah, so it was really for those people who are really lost and who are trying to make their way in the world. Yeah, excellent. And um, uh, thank you so much for having this conversation. I absolutely enjoyed it. And I'm very super confident that all our listeners will also enjoy. Thank you so much for your time, Shalini. Thank you, Shashwat. <laughs> Yeah.